0: Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And thank you again for being here and worshiping with us. If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 is where we are this morning. Uh, We are continuing our series, A Family for the World. We are doing a fall sermon series through uh, Genesis 12 through 50. So the second major section of the book of Genesis, setting the stage for the rest of the whole Bible, the whole story of God. Uh, to play out. And so we are now continuing that uh, in Genesis 17. All right, well, let me pray for us before we dig into that. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for allowing us to be here this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the word of God. And we pray, Lord, that your words in the Bible, that this passage, Genesis 17, as we look again at the story of Abram, God, that you would speak to our hearts through this word, that you would truly transform us into who you want us to be. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So the last couple of weeks, we have uh, been looking at this story of a man named Abram. And last week, specifically, we looked at the first part of a covenant made with Abram by God himself. And so as we'll continue to see today, one question that, that arises as we look at this great covenant, we, we talked about this last week, how much of this covenant is God's responsibility and how much of it is Abram's responsibility? You see, God's sovereignty, we call it, and that's pretty much a theological word that that means his power, his control over all circumstances in the world, his sovereignty, right? How God's sovereignty intersects with and interacts with our personal responsibilities as humans and our obedience, how those two things interact with one another is a mystery that we really cannot fully understand, that we'll never fully comprehend. And that's okay. Okay. Because we're not God, you're not God, right? And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with God being God. I'm okay with him knowing all things. And so if I don't understand something, that's fine. And there's a lot I don't understand. There's a lot we all don't understand. But the good news is Abram's story can really give us some wisdom and some insight as we seek to understand this great mystery a little better how God's power and His rule and control interact with our personal freedom and choice to obey or not. So last week, in Genesis 15, we saw two big things, right? One, we saw that God initiated this great plan of redemption. He initiated the plan. He chose Abram. And then we also saw that he guaranteed it would be fulfilled. He performed a ritual, a custom uh, or a customary covenantal ceremony with Abram. And he guaranteed that this plan would be fulfilled. Now what's what's the plan? Well, the plan is to create a family that will be a blessing to the whole world. And that comes from this situation that happened at the beginning of time. God created the world. He looked at the world and said, this is good, right? He created a good world. He set the stage for humanity to thrive. But what happened? Adam and Eve, the first humans, they decided, you know what? Eh, I don't really know that I want to live and answer under the authority of someone else. I kind of want to answer to my own authority. I don't know that what God's given us is really going to make us happy. I think that I probably need to reach for something different, for something more than what God has given me to make my life feel peaceful and fulfilled and happy. And so that great sin brought disaster on the human race and the world in general, but God was a God of grace even in the garden before the serpent left the garden before Adam and Eve got out of the garden of Eden God made a promise in Genesis three fifteen that he would not let this sin this evil this wickedness he would not let it continue forever that he would bring an offspring out of Adam and Eve's family line that a human would raise up one day would rise up and defeat the power of evil in the world once and for all. So years go by, the world keeps getting more and more wicked, but then God chooses this man that seems random. He chooses this man named Abram. So ultimately, we see God is in control, right? We see him enacting, initiating this great plan to redeem the world through an offspring of Adam. We see him choosing Abram to kind of really set that plan in motion. And then we see him guaranteeing that he will bring it to fruition. So ultimately, God's in control. But what does that mean for Abram, practically speaking, What role does he play in this whole grand story? Is there anything he needs to do? Can he just sit back and relax and say, you know what, I'm just going to give it to God and let him do it, man. I'm just going to watch him do it. Can Abram really do that? Is there something, is there some kind of personal responsibility that Abram must seek after in order for this to happen? Or can he just sit back and relax? Well, not at all. He cannot just sit back and relax. There is responsibility, and that's what we're about to see as we pick up the story in Genesis 17, which is the second part of this great covenant God made with Abram. All right, so Genesis 17. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2, and what I want us to do is kind of walk through the story together, and then we'll make a couple of significant points at the end. So Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You see, it's important to understand that 13 years have passed since Genesis chapter 15 that we looked at last week. When God made that great covenant, when he performed that ceremony, remember they, they cut up the animals and he walked in between, and, and that's foreign to our modern minds, but it was a very uh, important ceremony of ancient culture, and so God does this, and he guarantees that he will produce a family, a great nation out of Abram, and then 13 years pass. 13 years go by and get this, 24 years have passed since God initially came to Abram and told him that he wanted to make a great family and a great nation out of him. That's a lot of time. And guess what? Abram and his wife Sarai, they still don't have any kids they still have not been able to have children 24 years. And now Abram is 99 years old and Sarai is about 90 years old. And I mean, that's not exactly childbirthing years, right? <laughs> so guess what? In chapter 16, right before this, and I wish we had time to cover it all. We, we don't have time to explain the detail. But in chapter 16, Abram and Sarai, you know what they do? They start doubting that this is all really going to happen. Maybe God was teasing us. Maybe this is not actually happening. Or you know what? At least we don't have time. We don't have time for God to enact this plan the way he thinks it needs to be done. So why don't we take matters into our own hands? Let's, let's Let's figure this out, right? Let's do this our way. Let's figure this out so that we can take control. And so what do they do? Abram took one of his servants, Hagar, in chapter 16 to be his second wife and has a child with her. And that shows great distrust in God. It shows great impatience on Abram and Sarai's part. It shows great sinfulness and disobedience. And this is the man that God has chosen, But God has guaranteed He would make a great nation out of Abram. So does it matter how that happens? Absolutely it matters. So God visits Abram 13 years later and tells him essentially, you cannot do this the way you think it needs to be done. I am working out this plan in my timing. I am in control here ultimately, but you must be obedient. You must play your part in being faithful to my words. You must, as he says in verse 1 and 2, what? Walk before me and be blameless. In other words, Abram, you have to orient your entire life around me. You have to live a life of fruitful obedience. You have to live a life of integrity according to my commands, Abram. You can't just sit back and say, well, God's sovereign and he's in control. No, you have a part to play and I desire your love and obedience to me. And so here's Abram's response to that. Thankfully, look at what he does. Verses three through eight. Then Abram fell on his face. That's an act of worship. What can Abram do when he's confronted with a holy God? God says, I am God almighty. I have a plan, but you must be obedient. Thankfully, Abram responds with reverence and with awe. He falls on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. What is God doing? 24 years have passed. And from Abram's perspective, nothing has happened. From Abram's perspective and his wife's perspective, God is somehow silent. He is not working or at least he has perhaps forgotten about them. So God is reaffirming this great promise, this great plan, this covenant with Abram and he even changes his name, which is very significant in the Hebrew. You see Abram, that word, that name just means exalted father, which is a cool name for for a meaning, right? Exalted father. But the name Abraham means father of many nations, plural, plural, nations. Well, we just, did we not, I mean, I thought Abraham was just the father of Israel. Is Is he the father of more than that? See, this is significant. God is telling Abraham, listen, this is a worldwide plan. Listen, buddy, you have no idea what's coming. You have no idea how big and great. Abraham, do you realize what you are becoming a part of? This is a worldwide movement that will last forever because it will turn, your family is going to one day be an eternal kingdom. And the offspring, it's not you, it's not going to be your first son, it's not going to be... For a long time, but there will be an offspring who will rise up and rule and reign over this eternal kingdom that was once your little family. Abraham, your family is going to be a blessing to the whole world. Something greater than Abraham can even comprehend is going to come from his family line. He just has—he doesn't have the ability to really see that. Abraham will be a spiritual father to all who come under this great covenant of God's blessing, who enter, in other words, who enter God's family. But Abraham, while yes, God is guaranteeing and assuring this will happen, Abraham, you must trust and obey. You must have faith. So here's how God confirms that with Abraham. Look at verse 9. And God said to Abraham, or Abraham, as for you and I, and I love that. I love the transition and the phrasing there because up until this point God has been affirming what he's going to do but now he looks and says all right now for you. As for you, here's what you have to do, Abraham. You shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. In other words, God is saying there are obligations responsibilities for you and your descendants. You must live lives of obedience to me. You must be faithful to experience the blessings of this covenant. And to really ratify this and to make it memorable, God is going to give them a sign for this covenant. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, this is my covenant which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, this may seem obscure, this may seem random to our modern minds, but it's really not at all. This, because here's the thing, this is not the first sign, this is not the first sign God has attached to one of his promises in the Bible. Remember God's covenant with Noah? What sign did God give Noah when he made a covenant with him to not destroy the earth again? A rainbow, right? He gave Noah. He promised he would not destroy the earth again. He gives Noah this rainbow. And guess what? The rainbow was not random. A rainbow, when does a rainbow appear? When sunlight and rain mix or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> that's, my element, that's my elementary understanding of a rainbow. Um, <laughs> but guess what? This is very similar. This is very similar. God is establishing his covenant and he is ascribing a sign that will be a remembrance. And it's not random. The whole point of this covenant is about promised offspring, right? But as we know from Genesis 3, which we've been talking about, there will be an offspring one day who will defeat sin and death once and for all. So God gives circumcision as a sign, as a daily reminder to the people of God, the offspring will come and we must be faithful. That's the sign. But the question is, for us today, what can we learn? Like living in the 21st century, I mean, what, what does this story of Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17, this, this ancient covenant that God made with Abraham, is it relevant to us today? I mean, what does this mean? What do we see here that impacts us? And I think there's really a lot, but I wanna share two things in particular. You know what I think we see in this story? from last week and this week. I think we see, number one, that salvation is by grace through faith. And those words are very important to understand. Salvation is by grace through faith. You see, and we emphasized this last week, there's no question, right? God is the great initiator of salvation. That was true for Abraham, that's true for us. And he's the great guarantor of salvation. We read last week that he seals our hearts with the Holy Spirit. We are eternally bound to Christ. Once we know him, he is ours and we are his. Hebrews 7.22 tells us that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, a better covenant. You see, your salvation is not about you keeping all the rules and commands of the Old Testament covenant. Your salvation is not based on you offering sacrifices daily at the temple with a priest mediating between you and God. Your salvation, let's put it in modern day words, your salvation is not about how good or bad you have been. You know, I think that a lot, of us, a lot of us think that we're going to stand before God when we die or when Christ returns. And there's kind of going to be like these scales. And on one side of the scales, you have all of your goodness, the good things you've done, your good deeds, your good behavior, your moral values, your Christian virtue. And then on the other side you have all the bad things you have ever said, you have ever done, you have ever thought. And I think a lot of us think that we're just going to stand before God and we just really hope that at the end of time, when we stand before our maker, that the good will outweigh the bad and he'll let us live in heaven with him forever. But let me tell you something. That is not the way it works. Because when Jesus Christ came to earth, he did all the good that you and I could never do, and he took all the bad, all the bad that we've ever done, every sin you've ever committed, he took it upon Him, his own body to the point of death that it killed him. And he died for that ugly dirty record that we each possess on our hearts Christ took it upon himself he died in our place truly as our substitute so before when we stand before God man when we stand before God you know what the scales they're empty it's just the record of Jesus that we present it's the record of Jesus that we present to him for his glory and that is salvation. It's by grace. It's a new covenant. It's a new way of living. First Corinthians, Paul said this in 11.25. In the same way also, he's describing Jesus when he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. The night before he would be crucified, Jesus said this after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's a new covenant with a new sign. Do you see that? And how freeing is that? I mean, how how anxiety producing, right? I mean, how anxious is it to live a life not knowing if the scales are going to outweigh one way or the other when you stand before God? I mean, how do you ever know if that's what you think is going to happen when you enter eternity? How can you ever have rest? How can you ever have peace in your soul if you think that your behavior is somehow going to determine your eternal future? There's no way to know. How do you know if you've done good enough, if you've been good enough, if you've tried hard enough? The gospel completely obliterates that idea, that thought, because righteousness is credited to our account by God's grace, but it's through faith. This new covenant comes through faith. And it's reassuring, it's rest, it's peace. But this is how salvation came to Abraham as well, not just us. Remember last week, Genesis 15, 6. What does it say about Abraham? It says he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It's by faith that Abraham was saved in the promise and the trustworthiness of the Lord. It's by faith, right? It's by grace through faith that we are saved as well. Faith is this. Here's what faith is. Faith is a reorientation of your heart. It's, see, before you believed, you believed you could save yourself if you were good enough, right? That you could prove yourself to God. You could prove yourself to yourself, to others. But salvation, faith is a denial of yourself and your abilities. It's the great humbling experience of your life. Your soul and your will. It's you realizing that you can't be good enough, that you can't save yourself. It's you turning from that kind of belief to a better covenant. A better belief. It's putting your faith now, not in yourself but only in Jesus Christ. That is faith. That's how the gift of God's gracious salvation is accepted and credited to you. It's not by your works. It's not by any effort. It's by His grace through faith, not in yourself, but in Him. That turning, that belief, that reorientation of your whole soul. And once you have that relationship with Jesus, nothing can ever separate you from it and how glorious is that truth nothing can take that away even though you will still have sin in your life that lingers around you cannot lose your salvation because it wasn't yours to gain and it's not yours to lose you belong to jesus he owns you your life is not even yours you were bought by His blood under this new covenant of salvation by grace through faith. But the second thing I want us to see is that we must walk in ongoing obedience before the Lord in this life. This great salvation that is secured forever doesn't mean that we can just go and live however we want. With no consequences, we must walk, as God told Abraham, we must also walk in obedience. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 17. The Lord said, walk before me and be blameless. You see, God's grace is what's carrying this plan forward. God's grace is moving the ball down the field. In spite of Israel's wicked heart, and as you'll see later in the Old Testament, their rebellion against God time and time again, it is God's grace ultimately moving the plan forward as He orchestrates circumstances according to His will. But it is faith. It is faith and ongoing obedience that is necessary For these covenant promises to be enjoyed on an individual level. Just because your eternal future is secure in Christ does not give you a free pass to live however you want now outside of the boundaries, the good, healthy boundaries our God has given us to enjoy life. In Romans chapter 6, Verses 1 and 2, Paul says it this way. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, should we just say, well, you know what? God's grace is everlasting. His grace is never ending and never ceasing. So I can sin as much as I want and God's grace will just cover it all. Paul says, no, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? When Christ died on the cross, in a very real way, you died too. And Paul's saying, if the sinful part of you is dead, how can we still live in it? He says then later in verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Your salvation in Christ's unites you to His resurrection power. So what Paul is saying here is that sin, it cannot be your master. You will still sin as a Christian. Absolutely. Every single day, each one of us either has a thought that lingers and we dwell on that we shouldn't think about or a word that comes out of our mouth or an action that is absolutely sinful. There is something, every single one of us, every single day will do that rebels in some way against God and His design for our lives. But, what Paul is saying here is that though we will struggle with sin our entire lives on this earth, it does not have to be your master. It does not have to rule over the child of God. So, here's the great truth in all of this. You see, we don't obey God to get him to love us we obey God because he already has loved us you see it is ongoing obedience it is ongoing obedience in this life as a Christian that is going to help fulfill the great covenant that God made with Abraham that is fulfilled in Jesus and will one day be culminated in a new heaven and a new earth and what what do I mean? You see, we, the church, get this, we, the church, we are that family now. We are the family for the world. The family that God started with Abraham, guess what? You can call Abraham your spiritual father because he is. Because the covenant, Jesus coming to this earth as the offspring, when we are united with him by grace, through faith, we become a part of that family for the world. Here's how Peter said I love, I love 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Listen to this. But you are a chosen race. He's speaking to the New Testament church, by the way. That's us. He's speaking to us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see how we live as Christians, as the church, how we live absolutely matters for our witness in this world for the glory of God filling this earth. Whether you signed up for this or not, if you're truly a follower of Jesus, you are called to be His representative. Just think about that. How glorious is this great plan of God that started with a man named Abraham some 3,000 years, 4,000 years ago, that started with a man named Abraham and led all the way to Jesus Christ, a new covenant established, salvation is by grace through faith in His name, You enter that family, and now what is your responsibility? It's to be a representative of this great family. It's to be a representative of Jesus himself in every little context that we live. What an amazing plan. What an amazing strategy. Jesus gives this responsibility to his followers, and so what do you have? Here's what you have. You have moms at home living and teaching their children to love Jesus. You have have people in the workplace living before people and telling them about Jesus and representing Him. You have people at school living and loving people and showing and representing Christ. You have all these pockets around the city of Jacksonville of followers of Jesus representing Him whatever their vocation may be, whatever their responsibilities are in this earthly world. You have representations of Christ Spreading around the world. Is that not the original plan? Do you see that now? The plan is being fulfilled for God's glory to fill this earth with His image, the same initial command He gave to Adam and Eve. And now here we are. Philippians 2 12 and 13 speaks again to this great mystery we've been talking about God's power, our obedience. God is at work, even in our conscious effort to obey. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Growing over time to think and behave more like Jesus by growing in your love and adoration of Him, that's going to be the Holy Spirit working inside your heart as you seek to be obedient to the Lord through His Word. See, you know, we're not living as those watching a movie for the first time, right? Like me and Christy the other night. Just, this just tells you how exciting our lives are. We were watching Castaway on TV. This movie's been out for like 30 years now. And uh, she had never seen it, which was funny, because I had seen it, and I knew what was going to happen and how terrible this movie is at the end, right? It's just awful. How, you know, he doesn't get what he wanted, and he survived and all this. Anyways, she's not sure how the movie's going to end, and I'm kind of dropping hints, you know, telling her, But I know exactly how this movie is going to play out. And so it's really not surprising to me. But here's the thing. As the family of God, we, we're not living as those in this world as if we're watching this whole thing for the first time. Now, yes, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. Of course we don't. Only God knows that. But what we do know is what he has told us is going to happen in the future that he is going to return, that his kingdom will be established and he will rule and reign forever. And those who are in his family will live with him in life and peace to the fullest for all eternity. So what, So how does that affect the way we live now? We live with a humble confidence, knowing that we are humbled at the fact that we have a part to play in this grand story, but we are confident and that we know that sin will not have the final word. Only Jesus will have the final word. And if that doesn't affect I mean, if that doesn't transform our hearts, if that does not affect the way we live and speak and act and treat one another, then nothing can. What confidence this brings, what motivation this is to obey, knowing that we will experience the spiritual blessing of God's grace for all eternity. Obedience is the evidence of a changed heart. Romans 2.29, I want to close with this. Paul said it this way. He said, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, Paul is saying, those who are the true descendants of Abraham are those who have been changed in their heart. Not by their actions, not by their their good behavior, not by how good they think they've been or how faithful they think they've been, but how faithful God has been. And by turning to him and not ourselves, which changes our heart. That's the sign of the covenant that you have with Christ. If you're here with us today and the truth is maybe you've never really experienced that change of heart. The truth is maybe you are living with a underlying sense of anxiety about your death and the end of time because you do not understand or you do not know. You do not have a certainty that when you stand before God that you will be okay. Because in your mind, all up until this point in your life, you've been thinking that there's just going to be these scales and you don't know if you've been good enough and it just eats at you. It it, it eats at your soul. And I just want to say, if that's you here today, that Jesus offers rest. He offers peace. Because He comes and He says, all you who are weary... All you who are heavy laden, all of you who are burdened by this, this rock and this weight that you cannot bear. He says, come to me, I will give you rest. Would you do that today? Would you find me after the service and we can talk about salvation. We can schedule a time to to come together and really talk about your testimony and, and your life and your belief and what you think and what it means to follow Jesus. I would love to have that conversation with you. Don't be ashamed of that. Run into the arms of Jesus Christ. He is there and he is waiting for you. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we are so thankful that you made a covenant with Abraham that you fulfilled in Jesus Christ that we get to be a part of now. Lord, I'm thankful that a changed heart is what you've given us for those of us who truly have put our faith not in ourselves, but in you. A changed heart, a new life, Lord, you are the maker of all things new. And I pray, Lord, that that newness would be real as we live our lives in obedience to God. Lord, would you help us to be obedient with the great motivation, not that we have to prove ourselves to anybody in this world or even to you, but Lord, let our obedience overflow out of a heart of gratitude of thankfulness, of reverence and awe as Abraham fell on his face. Lord, may that be the spiritual posture of our lives. Running after you, longing for more of your grace, living in obedience to you and your word because we are so grateful for the new covenant we have in you. This eternal relationship. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, and raising from the grave to unite us with you forever. May we never, ever take that for granted. May our lives reflect the gratefulness we have for what you've done for us through our obedience. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.